We have so many real challenges, and the only way we can deal with those challenges if we join together and seek some level of a common denominator of understanding, some constitutional understandings that will allow ourselves not to fear from one another, but to work with one another. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we're speaking with Yohanan Plesner, President and CEO of the Israel Democracy Institute. Plesner grew up in Jerusalem and served as a soldier and officer in the IDF's Elite Sayeret Matkal unit, in which he still serves as an active officer in reserve duty. Formerly the co-founder and CEO at an international enterprise software company based in Israel, Canada and the US, he was appointed in 2005 by Prime Minister Ariel Sharon as head of special projects in the Prime Minister's office. In 2006, he became the first Secretary General of Israel's new ruling party, Kadima, and spearheaded the creation of the party's organizational infrastructure. He served as a member of the Knesset and was a member of the Constitution, Law and Justice and Defense and Foreign Affairs Committee. He was co-chair of the Knesset Lobby for Higher Education and chairman of the Knesset Permanent Delegation to the Council of Europe. He now leads the IDI's nonpartisan work to bolster the values and institution of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. In these times of turmoil for Israel, Yohanan and I spoke about the consequences of the new Israeli government's initiative for judicial reform that many, full disclosure, myself included, consider extremely detrimental to Israel's democracy. Yohanan explained why those changes are so troublesome and how today's issues compare to the existential threat of Israel's past and his hopes and aspirations for the future of Israeli democracy. Take a listen. So, Yohanan, did you ever think that one day you would be in the front lines of fighting for Israeli democracy? Uh, well, it's a direct question, Andres, and uh, the answer is no, not in this way. To some extent, I feel like I'm living in a in a dream or or perhaps in a in a nightmare. Yeah. But uh, no, I didn't think. We knew that Israel has huge challenges. And, and I've devoted the past few decades for uh, to try and make my own contribution to dealing with those challenges. But I didn't think that we're going to to deal with such a sort of a, a, a wave, not in terms of scope, uh, substance and process as we're dealing with the, uh, right now. To dig a little bit back so that listeners can know you better, you talked about decades of service to the state of Israel. Uh, you have a peculiar story there. You were in the army, special units, a member of Knesset. Just walk us a little bit through your your personal trajectory there. Well, I'm, I'm from Jerusalem originally, and I'm speaking to you right now from Jerusalem. 
And, and, and probably the for, my formative years were in Sayeret Matkal. I'm a major in reserves. I'm still in active reserve duty, but I served as a combatant and officer for five years. And for folks that don't know, Sayeret Matkal is the really badass Israeli commander. <laughs> the equivalent of the Green Berets or yeah, Delta Force. You know, a combination of Delta Force and Green Berets. Yeah, he's schwitzing a little bit here, but it's true. It's true schwitzing. He deserves it. So yeah, so it's quite, it's, a, it's an important part of, of who I am. And after that, uh, a more standard uh, process, I was in business after being, after studying in, in uh, university, I was in business a few years in management consulting and an entrepreneur and a uh, co-founded and managed an enterprise software company in Canada, California, and Israel. And then at some point I decided that I, uh, I want to devote my life uh, more than 20 years ago, almost 25 years ago, that I want to devote my life to public service and to help uh, both defend Israel, strengthen Israel, and to the future of Israel. And, and, and for that purpose, I went to the Harvard's Kennedy School to prepare myself for public service. And ever since, I've been in a number of public positions, both as a Uh, under Ariel Sharon in the Prime Minister's office as a head of special projects, then as Secretary General of the ruling party that he created, Kadima. So for, two, for a couple of years, I managed the party. It was a very yeah. uh, formative experience as well to sort of uh, get exposed to politics from the manufacturing line. Yeah. And, uh, and then six years in the Knesset. And, and for the past uh, uh, eight or nine years, I've been leading the Israel Democracy Institute. It's the largest uh, impact-oriented think tank in the country. And we're trying to inject ideas, facts, knowledge, recommendations into the decision-making processes. So two observations here. I think that for folks, knowing your background is important because, A, you know what you're talking about, <laughs> obviously. And I think that your trajectory underscores something that that I've been speaking a lot that this is not a left or right issue what we're talking here. You're not you know your your trajectory shows it you're not what we would call a woke progressive or a bleeding heart liberal, but you're very concerned about what's going on. So this is not a partisan issue or an ideological issue. It has to do with the essence of what do we want Israel to be in the future. What's really at stake here is the very essence of the checks and system of checks and balances of the protection of the very basic rights and, and liberties of, of Israelis. So it's, it's really not a, a question of right, left or center. It's a question of what are the fundamental values that characterize Israeli democracy and characterize, as a matter of fact, any democracy. Because if we take the cluster Of initiatives that is being introduced right now it would be wrong to judge each initiative on its own right but first and foremost we have to look at the whole a uh, cluster of issues and if we look at it as, a, as as one whole package there's only one common denominator and it is to concentrate all governing power in the hands of the political majority concentrate all governing power in the hands of the executive branch and And I, I don't know any definition, whether narrow or wide, of democracy that uh, dictates that democracy is only about majority rule, half of the population by a plus one. Right. And, and this and is really what's at stake. 
Yeah, and the problem in Israel is that when you concentrate all the power in a Knesset majority, basically there's no separation of power between the executive and legislative branch, correct? Like it, the government is the Knesset. You know, you get to the government by having 61 votes of the 120 of the Knesset. And the parliament is not independent from the government as it is in the US or in other democracies. So you're right, Andres. The Knesset is controlled in Israel by the government. I served in the Knesset for six years. And unfortunately, the Knesset is a particularly weak institution. Also, when we look at it in comparison to other parliaments in the world, the Knesset as an institution is weak and, and, and almost 100 percent controlled by the government. It's supposed to conduct a very important role, both of legislation and supervision of the executive branch. And it does it very poorly. Yeah. Right now it's imbalanced by right. government that controls the Knesset. And now if we want to weaken and politicize the court, we're basically left with one institution, the executive yeah. branch. And this hardly can be defined as a functioning democracy. So let's walk through the changes that are being proposed now. One is the judicial reform. With your permission, if we take a step back. Okay, go ahead. I think I think it would be relevant to share with your with you and your listeners, yeah. you know, that the fact that Israelis from all walks of life are coming out to protest against that package of legislation is a demonstration that something different is happening. You know, Daniel Kahneman, I think, put it quite eloquently, he said, I was, I'm more worried now than I was uh, during the Yom Kippur War. And the Yom Kippur War was obviously a, a, an existential threat. All our leading economists, the, the biggest uh, free market capitalists and the socialists all coming together and saying, uh, undermining uh, uh, the rule of law and undermining the independence of the judiciary will cause severe damage to our economy and, uh, and high-tech leaders are coming out and they've never, they've minded their own business and, and coming out and protesting and intervening. I've been in reserves now for about three decades. Never in my life did our uh, group of reservists, it's hundreds of re uh, reservists, uh, actually more than a thousand by now, and never did they come out on a political or publicly controversial issue. Now, reservists from Seren Matkal, officers are coming together, marching these days from uh, Latrun to Jerusalem every day with the Israeli flags. 1,200 fighter pilots are coming out. So Israelis from, and, and there's so many examples, something is different and Israelis are fearful. Many Israelis that, you know, from the backbone of Israeli society are fearful that if those changes are made, irreversible damage will be inflicted and it will be very difficult uh, then uh, to fix it. Let, let us understand what are those changes and why are they so dangerous and so unprecedented? So it's a, it's a cluster of changes. Number one, we, we mentioned the fact that to start with, Israel does not have a constitution. And the basic notion of separation of powers that, you know, for an American audience is almost, you know, self-evident. You have a, a president with veto power, an independent Senate that the, the president does not control, and an independent House that the president does not control, and an independent judiciary and Supreme Court and independent states that have their own authorities 
and a constitution that defines those, uh, those, the boundaries between all of those institutions and basically guarantees that the power is devolved, that power resides in many places. So this is the American system. And of course, alongside with that, the Bill of Rights that ensures that my basic liberties and properties and freedom of expression and freedom of association and equality before the law, all of these are guaranteed. Now, Anders, I'm sorry for, that I gave you this long lecture, but <laughs> not, we have none of that in Israel. Knesset is controlled by the government. Local governments, lo local municipalities are completely, all their uh, authorities are concentrated at the central government level. They can grant it and take it back. Uh, the Supreme Court is the only independent institution that constrains the otherwise all-powerful government, and it does that without a constitution. So even when the Supreme Court provides, conducts judicial review, the, the Knesset, with a simple majority, not a special process like you have in America to change the constitution with two-thirds here and two-thirds there and 75% of states, a simple majority can fundamentally alter all of the constitutional arrangements that we have. So this is our starting point. And from yeah. this starting point of a very strong executive branch that once it has an, a, a majority in the Knesset can do whatever it wants to our rights, to our separation of powers, now there's an attempt to, number one, politicize the appointment of all judges. So not only will the Knesset define all the, the laws and the constitutional rights, but it will also define with a a majority of, from the coalition, all hundreds of judges per year, not only the judges in the Supreme Court that deal with questions of uh, sometimes uh, a constitutional public matters, but all judges that deal with criminal affairs, with transportation, all of them will be political nominations. And Andres, as somebody who's been around in politics for a year or two, when Politicians get a full authority to, uh, to appoint, to make hundreds of good appointments of judges. From now on, it will be part of the coalition negotiation. If you want to be a judge or if you want to be promoted as a judge, there's only one thing you should do. Start subscribing members to the Likud or to any other par party that is in power. This is pretty much uh, synonymous to paving a motorway uh, that will take us in the direction of corruption and of a lack of a professional and independent judiciary. So, so appointment of judges, and let's let's talk about it for a minute. I've been, you know, sparring and on on Twitter, friendly with some, you know, in a friendly way, mostly with some people that say, well, but the the current system is also broken because basically you have a cast of lawyers and judges that decide themselves who the judges are going to be, which with no participation from the public. So people say, well, that's not very democratic either. Is there a middle way? Well, you know, the, the nice thing, and we've learned it, unfortunately, in, 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 in the JFN conferences, it was also discussed. Uh, you can say everything. It doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, but but you can say everything. So, so now the truth about how judges are appointed in Israel is that there's a judges selection committee chaired by a politician from the coalition, the justice minister. And there are four members uh, in the committee. Three of them are politicians from the coalition. There's a, a certain balance between politicians from the coalition, members of the Bar Association, and three judges in a nine-member committee. So it's not a committee where judges appoint themselves. Actually, the judges 
are a minority in this and they don't even chair the committee. And especially nominations for the uh, Supreme Court required consensus because you needed seven out of nine. So it forced the politicians and the judges and the members of the bar to agree, to sit and agree and, and reach consensus. And this is a system that has been in place since the beginning of the 50s. Is it perfect? Of course not. But it produced a whole decades and generations of judges that were by and large never corrupt. And you come from a country that has you know, experienced some corruption in its judiciary. It's a, it's a recipe for killing a country from within. Yohanan, this is why what I try to explain. My friends from that didn't have the privilege that I had of growing up in a dictatorship, people sometimes relate to these things as well. Those are like little niceties of, you know, democracy. People take it for granted, the fact that we don't have, uh, that our judges are not corrupt and they they're a large yeah. professional. Now, there are changes that can be made, but fully politicizing yeah. the system and yeah. giving all power to the politicians. When the courts go, basically everything goes. Like the, the courts generally are the last rampart to the rule of law in a country. And one of the things that is being talked a lot about is the override clause that would give the government the authority to revert any judicial decision. Correct? Now, let me... Yeah, let so me, the let override me... clause is, is the second uh, sort of very problematic initiative that is being promoted, mm. uh, to put it mildly. And it basically, the, the, the proposal is that a simple majority of 61 MKs, which is uh, the minimum majority that every coalition has, can override, can cancel judicial review decisions of the court. So basically a court comes with a verdict and the politicians don't like it and they override it. So in other words, not only did we nominate our own, our own judges and turn them into politicians, but we can also override their decisions. So by the way, you see that we're both heavily influenced by uh, Israeli culture, so we interrupt each other all the time. No, no, I, I think it will make it more interesting. <laughs> to put this in very specific terms, so let's say the coalition says, we are going to nationalize your bank deposits. Right. This happened in Argentina. We're going to like in, in Argentina, the government decided to nationalize the bank deposit. They didn't expropriate them. They transformed it into government bonds that eventually became worthless. And the court said no. And the government said, we don't care what the court says. So basically, with this change, a situation like that could certainly happen in Israel. A 61 MK majority could say, we gotta, we got to nationalize your bank deposit. You're going to go to the court. The court will say, of course, this is illegal. And then the same 61 MK's majority will say, well, we override that decision of the court. Yes. And, and Andres, you gave me this example. And initially I thought, well, you know, this Andres is exaggerating and this will never happen. But yeah, it did happen in Argentina. In some way, it happened in every country without an independent judiciary. Yeah. And, and this is why... So many economists and uh, former governors of the Central Bank of Israel came out in a very um, unprecedented manner and spoke very forcefully against it because they said in a country that with, there's no independent protection of property rights and the intellectual property and, the, and economic rights, there will be 
uh, grave economic uh, ramifications. It will change the calculus of, the, of, of investors. When they make an investment, it will increase the risk. It will even change the calculus of, uh, of owners of assets within Israel on whether they want uh, to hold their asset portfolio in a country where their assets are not guaranteed. And right. I, I must say on this also as, as, a, as an Israeli, it aggravates me that some of the Americans and American uh, philanthropists who are promoting those ideas in Israel, they sit in America and their assets are guaranteed by the American constitution and the American judiciary. Uh, so, so yeah, it has repercussions both for economic rights, but it's the same also in religion and state. You know, if I, I, I want to, I have four daughters. If I want to be sure that my daughters will be able to live their lives and have access to the public sphere, and, and tomorrow there's a legislation that says segregation in the public sphere, and somebody will file a petition to the Supreme Court and will say it's not constitutional because it violates the principle of equality, then the Knesset, with a simple majority, can override it. Given Israel's political culture, once politicians know that they have a certain right, they will always use it. It will be override built in on every issue into every coalition agreement. And those examples that you mentioned about religion and state, about gender segregation, those are actual cases that did happen, that were brought before the Supreme Court, like the issue of women in the army, the issue of women in the public space. Those were cases that the government tried to restrict, the Supreme Court litigated and didn't allow them to happen. So. You're absolutely right. You know, the, the court had to make decisions on equality for women, access to service. And as a result of those judgments, by the way, my older daughter today is a combatant in uh, in a special forces uh, uh, unit. Uh, I won't say which because she asked me not to, but I'm very proud of it. And, and this would not have been a, an option without a court safeguarding our rights. Now, if you look at the current coalition agreements, Not something theoretical. The current coalition agreement, there's a clause signed by Netanyahu with his own initials that uh, they will uh, promote a segregation in the public sphere. If there's an, an independent court, they won't be able to promote it. There's another, another clause signed in the current coalition agreements calling for the promotion of uh, the ability for small and medium-sized businesses or for businesses to deny service based on questions of faith or in other words if i have a venue for events and you're a gay couple and i and i think it's against my religion to allow you to conduct this event so i can decide not to provide you with this service now it's all in the coalition agreement and there's ample other examples so it's not removing the court the one constraint from the otherwise absolute power of the political majority as a some theoretical whim it's doing it in order to make concrete changes that will affect almost all walks of life. So here's maybe one of the reasons why Netanyahu has reverted his lifelong stand on the independence of the court, because actually some of the most powerful quotes about the need for independent judiciary come from Netanyahu himself. He spent much of his life defending that, but now it appears- And bragging about, bragging about the importance of Israel as the only democracy in the Middle East and the Correct. shared values with the West and with the US. Right, but it appears that now 
in order to get back to power, he had to promise all sort of things that are in essence illegal, like segregation, like uh, a permanent exception to the Haredim from arm from army service, all sort of things that the only way in which they can pass is with the override clause. This, needless to say, with his own personal situation being indicted and many members of the coalition being either indicted or, or convicted. But in a way, the judicial reform seems to be necessary for the coalition agreement to work, correct? Yes and no. You're right, because you know you gave concrete examples that exist within the coalition agreement. But the underlying assumption that Mr. Netanyahu is a captive of the ultra-Orthodox parties and therefore needs to deliver the goods, even if it means uh, undermining the judiciary against his own uh, uh, belief, I think that's not giving Mr. Netanyahu enough credit. He's the most uh, experienced and talented politician around, has been around for more than a generation. And if he wanted to prevent those changes from taking place, he would not have nominated Yariv Levin as justice minister, would not have given him the backing. And there are so many ways to sort of uh, promise. So it's it's, an, it's Netanyahu himself. It's uh, it's the agenda that he decided to, uh, to back, uh, of course, there's a personal interest here as well. He's uh, he's basically taking on the very system that he's confronting in court after being indicted, and so there is the personal interest of being wanting to nominate the old, the judges that will discuss his appeal and wanting to nominate the state pros to basically create a new role of state prosecutor that will be appointed by the politicians. So basically to appoint this state prosecutor that can provide him with a plea bargain. So there is the element of a personal interest. There is the element of the political interest, which you alluded to. Perhaps there is also an element of uh, the state is me and all of those constraints are preventing me from being able to do the right thing, which is a kind of a mindset that affects many politicians after they've been in power for too long. Right. And you mentioned uh, Netanyahu bragging all the time about Israel being the only democracy of the Middle East, which is true. And there is a very practical implication for that for your daughters and for the daughters of many of my friends that are now serving in the IDF. Uh, basically, that was the main defense that Israel had in front of the ICC, correct, of the International Criminal Court. In other words, Israel would say when, let's say, the Goldstone report came out or when, you know, Palestinians appealed to the International Criminal Court saying you need to jail Israeli soldiers that travel abroad and what have you, which is basically everybody in Israel. Israel would say, well, no, because Israel has an independent judiciary, Palestinians can apply to the Israeli court. And therefore, uh, we don't need, quote unquote, the ICC to come and do justice for us because the system works. One of our uh, you know, experts, he, he heads the Center for National Security and Democracy at IDI, and he was before that colonel, a colonel in the military and head of the International Law Department of the IDF. His name is Dr. Eran Shamir Borer. He represented the IDF vis-a-vis ICC, ICJ, and all of those demands by the international institutions trying to put their hands on our combatants and officers and, and, and to try and uh, indict them in, uh, in overseas uh, uh, panels. The single most uh, persuasive argument uh, that protected our combatants and soldiers is exactly 
uh, what you said, the fact that we were always able to prove we have a strong law enforcement system, strong and independent state prosecutor and law enforcement system, strong and independent judiciary, and we're conducting justice on our own. And therefore, uh, if any of our soldiers uh, did something that uh, demands uh, an indictment or bringing them to justice, it is done by our system. Once we will not be able to demonstrate it, it will strengthen dramatically the case of those who are anyway trying to indict our combatants and officers. And this will create a, a new risk of a different order of magnitude. Now, one of the MKs that are promoting those changes said, okay, too bad. Then our soldiers, even once they finish service, can stay in Israel. This is only a remedy that can be given by a party that is led by somebody who didn't serve in the military. Right. Because anyone serious understands that Israelis do their service and then we're internationalists. We're all over. Yeah, but the also, yeah, but also like yeah. you may be traveling for business. You might be traveling for things. You you may go to London and a Palestinian can be arrested. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a, it's a joke. You have to understand, you know, and, and I think it's to some extent also something that aggravates many Israelis. When you look at this coalition that is trying to concentrate all governing powers in its own hands, in our system, given some of the weaknesses of the Knesset, it means concentrating the power in the hands of about six people who are the leaders of the different factions. Out of the six factions uh, that are leading our co coalition, only one uh, faction leader, Netanyahu himself, served in the military, any kind of significant service. All the others, the leaders of the ultra-Orthodox parties and the leaders of the far-right parties of Smotrich and Benvir, never served a day. But they're not saving us from any of the criticism against the uh, women combatants who now constitute 20% of the combatants of the IDF. So yeah. something is so absurd and upside down that is aggravating many Israelis. And there is there is this element of Shivyon Anetel in a way, the, the element of, of the quality of, of, of the burden, burden yeah. of the burden, right? That is that it's being altered too, because the people that are against mostly against those reforms to the majority and we can't we can generalize but are the folks that pay most of the taxes that serve in the army and yet in some bizarre intellectual alchemy they're not patriotic enough <laughs> right yeah i mean obviously also could the voters uh yeah but the voters of the ultra-orthodox parties that are very very important elements within this coalition, 18 out of 64 seats, they do not serve. Their participation in the workforce is very minimal. And now they conduct themselves with the kind of hybris that we've never encountered before, both in terms of the appetite for budgets and for offensive legislation. But uh, even, I mean, the latest poll says that half of the Likud voters are actually against the proposed changes, right? Like uh, it's 70, kind of 80% of all uh, Israelis, among them 50% of folks that voted for, for Likud. Is that? Yeah, um, uh, I mean, the figures uh, vary, but generally we can say with authority that uh, a majority of Israelis oppose this cluster of changes. In one poll that was recently, uh, uh, about a couple of weeks ago, conducted less than a little less than half of Likud voters supported those changes. About 30 percent opposed them and 20 percent don't know. 
So, and this is within the Likud, obviously those who voted for the opposition, which are exactly half of the population, oppose them in huge numbers. So by and large, Israelis cherish their rights, cherish their basic freedoms. And even if, you know, Likud voters who very much appreciate Netanyahu and his leadership, less than half support these changes. And again, it depends on how you poll, but it, it gives you sort of, I'm, I'm quoting a specific poll, but uh, we're collecting a lot of data on that. So those who say, well, we just had an election and the Israeli people spoke out on this issue. Israelis didn't speak out on this issue. Israelis spoke out on, on the fact that they wanted stability. Netanyahu offered the best path to uh, establishing a stable government. And Israelis also voted on the fact that it was they were unable to digest the idea of an Islamic party in the coalition. They very much rejected that idea. That's perhaps the, the subject of a different conversation, yeah. Jewish-Arab relations in Israel. But this is what was at stake in the election. And Ms. Mr. Netanyahu, when he spoke, he spoke about the cost of living and spoke about the fact that he can form a government without uh, uh, the Islamists in government. And whenever somebody said anything about uh, undermining the legal system, he said, no, you know, it's not, you know, anything we will do will be balanced and measured and so on. As you understand, many of us in the diaspora are a little concerned because on the one hand, I don't think it's controversial to say that you defend democracy and basic rights and you fight for the Israel you want the same way you fight against the enemies of Israel. But for some folks, it's a little difficult to square these two things. Like, we are under attack. We are we're in a permanent state of existential war in which anti-Semitism is going up, anti-Zionism is going up. So how do we fight for these things inside Israel? And how do we, at the same time, don't give arguments or succor or help those that hate us? It's a great question because we have so many real pressing threats, problems, challenges that we have to deal with. And you mentioned some, you know, the BDS and the real existential threat and those were anti-Semites and anti-Semites that uh, disguise themselves as anti-Zionists and all kinds of problems that, that we're aware of. And what's so heartbreaking to some extent is the fact that the problems that we've discussed right now are self-inflicted. We have so many real challenges, and the only way we can deal with those challenges are if we join together and seek some level of a, a common denominator of understanding, some constitutional understandings that will allow ourselves not to fear from one another, but to work with one another. And this is those are the basic understandings, the basic sort of cons the minimum constitutional understandings that will allow us to operate without fearing that we won't be able to live based on our way of life and so on. And this is what this argument is all about. To push you a little bit more, I, I get all that. Israel has been living without a constitution because the wisdom of Ben Gurion was to say, well. Let's agree on some theories of status quo. We're going to try to live together in a fluid way, because if we try to anchor that in a constitution, we're never going to agree and we're going to splinter. OK, and maybe now is the time where these assumptions don't hold anymore and we need to anchor some of the basic rights. But but I'm talking about something else. I mean, that I, I know that's not your area of expertise. You deal with democracy in Israel. We don't deal with diaspora and, and BDS and all that stuff. But 
What do you think is a good message for us in the diaspora that are at the same time fighting anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism? How can we articulate both things? How can we fight external enemies and at the same time... Well, Israel, Israel has been defined in the nation-state bill, but also in the Declaration of Independence as a Jewish and democratic state, a state of all Jews, those who live in Israel and those who are not. Formally, in, in our constitutional arrangements, like the nation-state bill, we speak about our uh, responsibility and shared faith and shared future with uh, Jews in the diaspora. And now there's a, a certain debate within Israel on the nature of what it means, of how will our constitutional arrangements look like. And I think there's a role for diaspora jury and diaspora leadership in this internal debate within Israel, because the outcome of this debate will affect diaspora jury and certainly affect the relationship of diaspora jury to the Jewish state. If the Jewish state will become a Jewish state only for Jews uh, uh, from a very particularly orthodox type, then it will no longer be something that uh, will be a shared project. So if yeah, we want this yeah. shared project, there, there are ways to participate in this internal discussion. And there's also much lack of knowledge or ignorance within the Israeli population on those issues. So there's much sort of barren ground, if I speak about philanthropists and Jewish leaders, to, to sort of educate Israelis on those issues, make your yeah. voice heard. There's much to be done. So it's a little bit, you're paraphrasing the famous saying of, of Ben-Gurion in the in the early 40s, that we will fight the British as though the Germans didn't exist, and we would fight the Germans as though the British didn't exist. I was I was thinking of no, whether sorry, to use this uh, yeah. in the Sefer Alavan. Yeah, we would fight the Sefer Alavan, the, uh, uh, the white paper of the Brits, as yeah, if uh, Nazis don't exist and we will fight the Germans as if the Sefer Alavan doesn't exist. I was actually thinking of bringing up the same quotation, and I decided to refrain from it. Yeah, because we don't want to make those comparisons. But in a way is, I will fight, and this is my personal commitment, right? I will fight BDS and the haters of Israel and the anti-Semites and, and those that try to seek to legitimize Israel as if though those changes. And, and I would simultaneously fight for the character of the state. And, and I agree with you, Andres, but those fights are not necessarily separate or conflicting. Because right. if we are going to initiate to implement uh, this package of changes, it will provide such a boost to the anti-Israeli voices and then so on. They will have more ammunition to throw at us. Uh, you mentioned a, a specific area of the relation of these changes to uh, the diaspora. One is the change to the Chokashvut, correct? The law of return. So, like, for folks to understand, some of the members of the coalitions want to change the law of return that now has the grandparents clause that if you had a one Jewish grandparent, you can emigrate to Israel and be considered a Jew by the state. And they want to change that. Now, that would actually leave out of the equation many of the American Jews, actually many of I mean, both left and right, you know, intermarriage is a, is a very broad phenomenon. So uh, how realistic do you think that change is? I don't think that the first thing, even if those changes pass and, you know, judicial review will be uh, sidelined, I don't think that the changes to the law of return will be the, the next agenda item on the government. Over time, 
I, I cannot guarantee it, but I don't think, you know, the government's agenda is concentrating all power in the hands of the political majority because the ultra-Orthodox have an agenda, as we mentioned it before, the settlers have an agenda, Netanyahu has an agenda. The main agenda item of those three factions that make up the current coalition are not uh, focused on uh, changing in this way the, the relationship between Israel and diaspora jury. But once there's no judicial review... Yeah, nothing guarantees it, of course. President Herzog called for a broad dialogue on these issues. Are you hopeful that some sort of national dialogue on these issues will be uh, conducted? Well, the, you know, the president, as you mentioned, the president Herzog uh, called for sort of a, a suspension of the promotion of, of this package of legislation. He called for a couple of weeks in order to convene uh, a dialogue and to try and identify a different uh, a path, a path of, of a broader consensus. His call was uh, denied. Basically, uh, uh, the justice minister and Netanyahu said that they will continue with the legislation in the Constitution Committee. So, so the coalition has the numbers, and in a country without a constitution, has absolute power to push ahead with its uh, a package of legislation. We are at IDI convening a, a, a group uh, uh, for a dialogue. What constitutional principles uh, that a broad majority can agree on, how will it look like? But until there are the political players from within the coalition that want to sort of uh, adopt or provide the, uh, or rely on such a process, then all, all the power now is in the hands of the coalition and, and, and we cannot trust that, you know, that uh, a compromise will so, be sought after. So what, what happens, like just curious about the system, what happens if there's an impasse? Let's say the government passes a reform, the attorney general says this reform is illegal, the Supreme Court says reform is illegal, and even they try to override and the attorney general says it's illegal, the Supreme Court says the override is illegal. So does it leave us in a limbo of not like what you're describing is not inconceivable unfortunately and and, yeah. and what you're essentially describing is a constitutional deadlock the, basically the supreme court can say well the knesset is misusing or uh, exploiting its role as a constitutional assembly in a way that is uh, making laws that should either not be part of a constitution or against the fundamental character of the state as manifested in the Declaration of Independence and so on. And if then the court decides that, say, the decision to fully politicize the system of appointment of judges is not constitutional, uh, the judges selection committee convenes nevertheless in the new format. Is it legal the way they're appointing judges or not? Who should the chief of police listen to, uh, to the court? or to the government. So we might end up in, in, a, in a very uh, undesired situation of a constitutional deadlock, assuming those train of legislation will continue in 100 and in 200 kilometers uh, per hour. In this uh, bleak scenario, what gives you hope? Israel has been through worse. So we mentioned that some Israelis are comparing the situation to the Yom Kippur War. In the Yom Kippur War, we won in the end. 
So there was a, I mean, there was a price that we paid, but but we also uh, won in that war. So if you want the two sources of optimism, number one, this is also a constitutional and democratic moment of awakening. So many Israelis and so many Jews and so many friends of the Jewish state are now asking about constitutional questions and constitutional arrangements. And since we, the experts, know for a long time that a constitutional, a minimum constitutional arrangement is absolutely necessary to ensure a democratic, strong and vibrant future for our state, perhaps this is a moment of constitutional awakening. And whether this cluster of initiatives passes or not, we will use this crisis in order to educate the public on the need for constitution, and we will be able to legislate it with a broad consensus. Again, whether it will be after a crisis and after a bad legislation or before it. So, Yohanan, thank you so, so much. And by the way, thank you very much for your service to the country, to the Jewish people. And uh, let's hope that something good comes out of this crisis. I actually, in my heart of hearts, I'm sure this will be the case. So thank you. Great. Thanks for hosting me, Andres, and look yeah. forward to many more conversations. Toda, Yohanan. Thanks so much to Yohanan Plesner. You can read more about Yohanan's work and that of the Israel Democracy Institute at idi.org.il. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at JFunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. And I leave you with a quote from Winston Churchill. Of course, since we're talking about democracy, he said, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. So keep believing in democracy, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives. <laughs>